Banks was at the opera when he got a a message. Text. From <laughs> a text would have been handy. He got a letter delivered to him, and delivered at the opera, saying, you've got to report to Plymouth in two days' time, the ship is sailing. And I thought, oh, well, that's a good story, you know, the urgency of it. And I thought, oh, well, I wonder what opera he was watching, you know. And so I thought, well, Mozart, of course it would be a Mozart. So I, I said that it was a Mozart um, uh, opera that he, was, he and his fiancé were watching and um, came back from the editor. Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Mozart was 18 months old at the time. Welcome to Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of the open book at 201 Ponsonby Road, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop. Today we have got with us Graham Lay, who is a well-known New Zealand writer uh, who's written many books and recently has written quite a bit of historical fiction. Hello, Graham. Hello. Such a pleasure to have you with us. Nice to be here. So your last four books are works of historical fiction, and maybe more as well. I probably didn't get through the whole catalogue. Well, it depends what you define as historical fiction. I once published a novel set in nineteen in the nineteen sixties, and I wrote it in the nineteen nineties, and and in a way that was historical too, because such a lot had happened over those three decades. And at the moment, I'm researching a novel set in nineteen forty eight in New Zealand, and that's historical too, because it's now a very long time ago. Well, that certainly feels historical. What's the interest for you in that gap between the present and the past as a writer? Well, I, I love sort of vicariously stepping back into another era and recreating that era for the reader. And it's just, I, I find the past so much more interesting than the present. It doesn't seem as threatening, although it probably was at the time. And it was full of interesting events that, with hindsight of another 40 or 50 years, or in the Cook case, 250 years, we can see everything that's happened since. And, uh, and it helps to uh, step back in time. It's like time travel, really, when you're writing historical fiction. So it's, it's something I enjoy doing very much. So talk to me about that idea it's less threatening. That feels very interesting. Yeah, well, when you think of what's happening in the world today, the world's in a terrible mess, you know, and the latest developments about Iran and so on bring nuclear war a little bit closer, certainly nuclear testing a little bit closer. Now, the past didn't have that. I mean, there were wars, of course, but there, there were limitations on the amount of killing that you could do to other people. And at the same time, there were exciting discoveries going on, and that's what I've tried to bring across in the Cook novels, that the world hadn't been fully explored in the 1770s. <clears throat> there was uh, a lot of the um, continents, hadn't, the coastlines hadn't been charted, uh, and that must have been terribly exciting for the people who were in, in, invo- involved in exploring. And Cook, of course, was the supreme explorer at that time. Yeah, I... I've read something about people who write sort of detective fiction, particularly being modern technology makes some of the old stratagems more difficult mm. and the ability to sort of keep the tension when there's so much more unknown in the past. Yes. Yeah, well, technology means things are changing so quickly, you know, and I've often, well, not often, I've sometimes had ideas for a, for a novel uh, and you realise that it 
it just wouldn't work because technology has overtaken, you know, the, the plot that I had in mind, you know, with, with social media in particular. So, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing. And so I suppose, in a way, that's why I've gone back into the past, like 250 years ago, because it was limited technology. Um, I knew what, what the characters could do technically and what they couldn't do, more to the point. Uh, and so you are freed up in a way to recreate that world um, according to what it was at the time. That's what you hope to do. And what's your process for writing historical fiction? You have the germ of an idea and then what happens? It usually starts with a character. Um, in the case of the Cook novels, obviously it started with Cook himself. I had written a lot of non-fiction about Cook uh, and I was given a project, a commission to, to a book, another book about Cook, but it was non-fiction, and I, for one reason or another, didn't work, and I gave up on that. But I was still haunted by the character of Cook because I'd read a lot of non-fiction, a lot of biographies. Almost every year another biography comes out. They're not telling you anything new. They're just recasting the story in a slight way. Um, but there were unanswered questions about Cook's life that fascinated me. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought this is a job for a novelist because I, not having the facts that I wanted to have, not having things explained the way I wanted them explained, according to various turning points in his life, uh, I decided I would invent plausible, I hope, uh, reasons for, for why he did what he did. What are you hoping to do for the reader then? What, what do you want the reader to gain from reading these Well, books? you always want your reader to be entertained. You know, I'm not a, a very lofty writer. I, I don't want to produce, you know, postmodern miracles or anything like that. I just want the reader to be involved in the story uh, and keep turning the page. And there's no doubt about it, that last quarter of the 18th century was a fascinating time to be alive. There were so many exciting things that were happening, so many technological developments, so many new political ideas. Uh, the, the, it was called the Enlightenment, and it was a good time, a good title for it, because people had much freer thoughts about politics in particular, philosophy. Um, there was the American Revolution, breaking away from Mother England, the 13 colonies declared their independence, and democracy was uh, and freedom of expression was the, at the heart of that. And there was a French Revolution, the overthrow of the monarchy and so on. It was an exciting time to be alive. And I wanted the reader to try and share some of that excitement. And the excitement mainly comes from Cook's desire to discover and chart new lands and his extreme skill at uh, navigating ships across the world and, and in most cases uh, being able to do what he set out to do. And how do you know when you've gone deep enough into the period to be able to write about it? Is there an internal sense that says to you, I can go now? Yes, I think there is. I mean, you've got to do an enormous amount of background reading. Um, and that's not a chore because I actually enjoy it very much. You read all the biographies. You're recreating a period from history and you've got to do it plausibly. And that means getting all the details right. So you, if you have a story in your mind, uh, and in, in the Cook's case, and in Fletcher Christian's case, uh, the story was already there. The narrative had been written about many, many times. But the novelist can take it to a deeper level and provide 
I hope, the motives for what they did and get inside the character's mind and so on. That's the real satisfaction for me, bringing characters, real characters from history alive for the reader in a way that a biographer or a non-fiction academic just doesn't do. Doesn't have the freedom to do. No, they haven't. They, they're trammeled by, by facts, you know, all the time. And of course you have to have a factual... I couldn't play fast and loose with historical facts when I was writing about these people, but um, what I wanted to do was fill in some of the gaps that no one had been able to explain to me or to anybody else for that matter. And of course you, you, take, you have to take risks when you're recreating periods from the past historical era because you can get a lot wrong. No, you, and what happens if you do get it wrong? Oh, you so, feel terribly embarrassed. Right, someone points it out, some yes. helpful soul. Well, I've got a very good editor, uh, Stephen Stratford's editor of all my historical stuff, and he's got an unerring eye for an anachronism. For example, I had Cook leaving England on the Endeavour in 1768, and Joseph Banks, who was to come with him as the naturalist on the ship, Banks was at the opera when he got a... A message text. from Cook. <laughs> <laughs> a text would have been handy. They got a letter delivered to him, hand delivered at the opera, saying, you've got to report to Plymouth in two days' time, the ship is sailing. And I thought, oh, well, that's a good story, you know, the urgency of it. And I thought, oh, well, I wonder what opera he was watching, you know. And so I thought, well, Mozart, of course it would be a Mozart. So I, I said it was a Mozart um, uh, opera that he, was, he and his fiancée were watching and... Um, Came back from the editor. Impossible. <laughs> Mozart was 18 months old at the time. Well, he was a genius, you see. Come on. He wasn't that much of a genius. Give the boy some credit. <laughs> so yeah. it's not that, you know, editors are worth their weight in gold because they can go through and, and check these things. Uh, one important fact was missed in the, in the first novel, which uh, I was embarrassed about, but only one reviewer picked it up and it involved a flag. Flags are very important in maritime stories and uh, I got the flag wrong Stephen didn't get that but one reviewer did and he's not never let me forget it well, so what was wrong with the flag then? well what, it was the French flag that Cook saw in New Zealand in December 1769 Cook was sailing up the east coast and during a gale they saw a French ship coming the other way this was true to serve ship and the sailor on deck gets very excited seeing another European ship in you know, New Zealand. It was very, very uncommon, to put it mildly. And he races down to the great cabin and says to Cook, there's another ship. Cook says, which flag is she flying? And the man says, the French flag, the tricolour. And Cook is very fed up about this. Of course, he thought he had a claim on New Zealand first. Now, the French flag, the tricolour... You know this story, do you? Well, I feel I maybe know the outlines, but I would like to hear it from you. Well, the French flag was... Uh, the, the tricolour was flown for the first time during the French Revolution, which wasn't until another 20 years. And, of course, that raised the question, what was the French flag at that time? Do you know what it was? A lion or something rampant? No, no. It was completely boring. It was a blank white flag. Just a white flag. Well, cheese-eating surrender monkeys. <laughs> That's why they had a white flag, That's right? That's right. It sounds. It seems very suitable, doesn't it? In a way. <laughs> anyway, those, it's, things it's like that. Bush of beloved memory said. Those anachronisms, you know, have to be picked up, and so you've got to be. 
he got to every tiny little thing. Hilary Mantel has written, you know, her novels about the. Um, I'm making gestures of adoration. Yes, uh, well, listeners. she is the ultimate historical She's novelist. She's incredible. She's written. Uh, I've got a little quote here. Would you like? To I'd love I, to hear I a quote from Hilary Mantel. Yes. This is what Hilary says about um, historical fiction. I never believed that fiction set in the past or the future is an inferior form of fiction. It demands the same attention to style and form as a story with a modern setting and places a greater demand on the skills of placing information and of managing complexity. Every page in a novel is the result of hundreds of tiny choices, both linguistic and imaginative, made word by word, syllable by syllable. The historical novel requires an extra set of choices. What sources to consult? What shape to cut from the big picture? What to do when the evidence is missing or ambiguous or plain contradictory? Most of these choices are invisible to the reader. Now, that's what you hope anyway. Yes. But those are the things, I think she sets it out really well, that every novel is just, you know, step by step and hundreds of choices in each chapter. And the um, challenge for the historical fiction writer is to get it right. You get the facts right and then the story superimposed on the, on the facts. And what about when you're writing a character who's really quite foreign to your experience? So I was thinking about the character of Isabella in Fletcher on the Bounty, who's yes. a Tahitian woman, high-born in you know, whatever mm. year it is. And how does it feel to try and inhabit someone that far from where you are yourself? Oh, it's a really interesting exercise. I, I enjoy it very much. And I've been lucky enough to know women... A little bit like Isabella, um, I've worked with Polynesian women uh, in the past and I sort of, I, I think I know their reaction, how they react to things and and what sort of priorities they have. And so it wasn't all that difficult, not quite as difficult as you might imagine. And uh, she was in fact a remarkable person. She went through a terrible lot. and. Uh, and that too, I wanted to portray the fact that she really, she and the other Tahitian women really saved that community on Pitcairn Island. Well, they ended up being the community, <coughs> didn't they? That's right. After and, all, yeah. the men had killed each other. That's right. And, and yes, that's right. They pulled it all together uh, after that, after the terrible massacre. And I was on Pitcairn a few years ago and I saw that recently they had erected, put a plaque above Bounty Bay with the names of all those Tahitian women. It was a tribute to them. They were the first women in the world to get the vote, by the way. Right. Far earlier than the New Zealand women did. And it's um, Fletcher of the Bounty, as I said to you, is um, a story I read one version of it often when I was young and it's sort of imprinted on my mind, mm. you know. Mm. It's one of the stories I think about. And reading your version was so interesting for me. And the clarity with which it is a story about will and control and kind of honour mm. Um, mm. was interesting to me. How did you think about writing about that? Well, the heart of the story is the relationship between William Bly and Fletcher Christian. I mean, Isabella came along later and she's a very important character. But the, the mutiny wouldn't have happened had it not been for the antagonism between those two characters. So I had to try and delve deep into Fletcher's mental state in April 17. 79 and, and um, try to, 17, 18, 9, sorry, and try to imagine what it was like for him 
cooped up on a ship, a small ship with a man he detested. Now, the irony of that is that they had been good friends. Earlier, they had been sailing to the West Indies together. Fletcher had stayed with, with um, William and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, in London. So that made it all the more ironic, really, that terrible, this terrible thing should happen between these two men. And I had to put myself in Fletcher's boots and walk around the ship with him for a long time. And I concluded that he probably did what he had to do. There was no alternative. He could have killed himself. And he tried to do that and failed miserably. Um, he could have stayed on the ship for another six months with the man he hated. He could, it just was physically impossible, mentally impossible to do that. So the only course of action was to take command of the ship and, and with the aid of the other mutineers who also hated Bly, they took it over. And, um, but that was just the beginning of the story, really. I mean, it's still going on, really. There's descendants of Fletcher and Isabella all over the South Pacific. And uh, Pitcairn is a most amazing place and an amazing community still. So that was that was really interesting, you know, to to be Fletcher Christian. And I'd seen all the movies, but they a lot of them were rather fanciful. To actually go as I did, to go fishing with Fletcher's great 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 grandson, you know, was a pretty thrilling thing to do. <laughs> and that really sparked my determination to write the novel. Mm. Wow. And how, what do people on Pitkin think of it? Has anyone read it? I think they have. I haven't had any reaction. Have you been back? <laughs> I haven't. It's a very hard place to get to. Mm. Um, I gave, I was, uh, I know Betty Christian quite well. She wasn't a Christian, but she married a Christian. She and Tom, her husband, ran the radio station on Pitkin for many years. That was the only way they could communicate with the outside world. All that's been superseded now by satellite communications and so on. But for a long time, radio and Morse code and all that was uh, in the hands of Tom Christian and Betty. And they were both uh, honoured by the Queen for their services. I went to see Betty when I was writing the novel because there were a couple of things I wasn't quite sure about. And she told me something which was so helpful. And I thought, wow, that's exactly what I wanted. It was just so dramatic. Something I'd never read before about Fletcher. So I put that in the novel. And I was so grateful to Betty that I gave her a copy quite only just a few months ago. I haven't heard a word since. And what was this thing that she told you? Oh, I couldn't really tell you. It's, oh, OK. Uh, <laughs> but it's in the book. Yes, it's, uh, it, re it involves the death of Fletcher Christian. Right. And there haven't been many first-hand reports of how he was killed and certainly what happened to the body afterwards. That's what I asked Betty. Right. And she was able to tell me. She wasn't 100% sure, but it was good enough for me as a, as a novelist. It was, too, it was really good material. What was your interest in putting in the blind makes a sort of homosexual advance to Fletcher Christian mm, and well, your well, of the story? This was part of my digging around to try and find out why they fell out so badly. And I thought it would have to be something really, really serious, something that would upset Fletcher, and then Fletcher's reaction would then upset William, uh, and that went quite a long way to determining their relationship from then on. I was talking to a legal friend who, who had been reading the, the Admiralty papers from the 1820s, and he came across this mention of, of the mutiny on the bounty, April 1789, 
and Fletcher said something about as he pushed him into the launch, oh, you won't, you won't be able to indecently assault me anymore, or something like that. It was just a sort of tangential re- reference to a homosexual overture, and I thought, well, that, you know, that's not all that improbable, you know. That the, I mean, Fletcher was a very good-looking man, you know, uh, over six feet, and he was handsome, and he was very fit and strong young man. Bly was just over five feet high. He was a, he was a little poison dwarf. I think he must have been very jealous of Fletcher. Certainly jealous of Fletcher's popularity with his shipmates and and so everything was there for this, for this relationship to disintegrate. And I think probably that that um, sexual overture was the thing that really must have tipped it, tipped it over in Fletcher's mind. Can you tell me the story of how you came to be a writer, Graham? What's your origin story as a writer? Oh, I've always loved writing. When I was at school, like, you know, I used to love writing stories. Um, I didn't see it as, a, as any kind of a chore at all. And uh, <clears throat> I remember once when I was in fourth form when the English teacher read out one of my stories to the rest of the class and I, I got a big kick out of that. I thought, wow, that's good. And I suppose that was my first kind of publication. And I had stories published in the school magazine. and I'd always loved reading, too. I mean, mm. all writers love reading. Yes. Well, you uh, hope they do. Yeah. And, I, and that always, um, that's a catalyst for, for a writer, you know. Once you read something that's incredibly moving, you, you think instinctively, gosh, I wish I could do that. I never, never thought I would be able to. And I certainly had this usual painful apprenticeship you know uh, with rejections everywhere but uh, I stuck to it and you've got to you've got to be really stubborn and persevering. And what made you stick to it what were you saying to yourself? <clears throat> Just a, 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 an inner determination to do it you know I wasn't going to be put off it's always a knockback when you, somebody turns you down but you've got to stubbornly carry on and prove that they're wrong you know I've had well, the, the first Cook novel was turned down by a major publisher. Hardly any reason given. I don't think they even read it very well. But, and, uh, I, you know, I was, I, that was a blow. And I thought, Margaret, you know, I'm, this is a good story and I think I've got inside Cook's character. Next publisher. Well, I got a three-book deal out of it, you know. So it, it goes way back to when I was 13, 14 at school, had a good English, two good English teachers, which always that helped. makes a huge difference. Makes a terrific. It? You you scratch every writer, and they'll t- they'll find a good English teacher in their past. Uh, and I certainly was lucky. Shout I'd... out to Elaine Linsky if she's listening. <laughs> Elaine Linsky, that's a good name for a writer teacher. Yeah, that was in Wellington, was it? Yeah, she's Kate Kemp's mum. Uh, you know the poet Kate Kemp. Oh right, yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, the family name's Linsky, is it? Mm, well. Oh. The, the, uh, yeah, her name yes. is uh, And she was a teacher at which school? At Wellington High. That's right. where I yeah. encountered okay. her. Yeah, certainly well, important I went, for my writing life. Yeah, it's right. Oh, good. Well, I went to a very small rural school in uh, Taranaki. And uh, looking back now, I realised it was actually quite a good school. There were some good teachers. There were the usual sort of idiots as well. But there were a handful of really good teachers, and the standards were pretty high. And um, that certainly got me interested in literature and reading and uh, and so it went but there was a long time before I got published it's a, it's a hard it's a very hard um, vocation <laughs> mm. it is and 
on the topic of other people who've done well and got published, what would you say to listeners who are interested in the New Zealand canon? What are some essential works of New Zealand fiction in your mind? Well, I was thinking about that question just today. It's interesting. I almost invariably come back to short story writers. And um, I was inspired myself by Frank Sargison's short stories, one in particular that I stumbled across it in the sixth form, called An Affair of the Heart. And it was the first recognisably New Zealand story that I'd ever read, set in, on the north shore of Auckland. And, um, and I, I responded to it immediately, and I, it moved me tremendously, and I've never got sick of reading it. And before that, before Frank, there was Catherine Mansfield. I mean, her stories are small masterpieces. Janet Frame, I discovered about the same time as I found the Sargison stories. Um, Janet's um, wonderful story called The Lumber Room. I don't know whether you know it, but it's... Uh, I don't. I know her poetry amazing. well. Yeah, well, The Lumber Room is a great one to start. Quirky stories, like most of her writing, but such insights into, into human character. One called My Cousins Who Could Eat Raw Turnips. Not going to stay with her cousins in Southland and... That's very good too. And of the longer fiction, you know, Morris G is a great um, favourite Morris G is a wonderful mm. writer, mm. isn't he? He is. Yeah. And I've recently been to Nelson to do some talks and I, I, as soon as I got there I thought of Morris G because at least two of his novels were set there, one called The Burning Boy, which was an extremely good novel, I thought, and another one called uh, Loving Ways, which was sort of about the hippie communes of the of the 1970s and 80s around Nelson. So it's it's a, an indication of Morris's great skill that as soon as I went to Nelson and looked around the hills, I thought of that burning, that, uh, you know, flaming uh, plantation and uh, the pine trees and so on. That, that's a sign of a, of, a, of a novel that's really hit the mark. It's into mm. the landscape. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he's um, Morris is living back in Nelson now after time in Wellington, so he must be attracted to the place, I think, too. Uh, other writers? I've just read um, Vincent O'Sullivan's latest novel, which I think is a very fine piece of work. Vincent was my tutor at Victoria University's. We've sort of right. <laughs> kept in touch ever since yeah. I failed his course, which I never, I never uh, failed to remind him of. But we always have a laugh about that. That's he's the first novel he's published for a long time. Yes, and he's only his third novel. He's a real craftsman, isn't oh, he? Oh yes, and I imagine it's taken that one. It's called uh, All This by Chance. You know, it must have taken years of of writing and again a lot of research about the Second World War. Yes, so he's a very fine writer. So we have, we've got a lot of writers we can really be proud of. But I've just discovered an Australian writer. I read quite a lot of Australian literature and, um, you know, Tim Winton, I'm a great fan. Of. Yes, me too. Yeah. Have you come across Jane Harper's work at all? I have not. No, Jane Harper. She's a journalist, but she's, and she's from England originally, but she lives in Melbourne. And she published a novel a couple of years ago called The Dry and My Wife's Book Club reading it and I picked it up and read it well it's just a brilliant brilliant dissection of a small community in Australia and um, she's coming to the Auckland Writers Festival by the way giving oh, great. A talk there. and she's followed it up with one called Force of Nature which you know you're never quite sure if somebody writes a stunning first novel it's pretty 
hard to keep up that standard, but she's done it with the second novel too. Well worth reading, and we should read more Australian writing. We do read quite a lot, but they don't read much of ours, I don't think. No, well, that's always <laughs> Big Brother, Little Brother. Well, look, that is in a great list of um, books, you know, and anyone who popped into the open book would probably find some of those stories in some of the collections that are on the shelves there. So. Yes, I've seen I was there earlier this evening and I saw, I'm sure, Morris G's books were there. Yes. Yeah, and yes. Catherine Mansfield, of course. Yeah, yes. So, um, yes, do avail yourself of, of the... Um, of the re- very reasonably priced books at the open book. That was a fantastic advert. Thank you so much, Graham. That's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Anna. To talk to you. Uh, and this has been Ears Wide Open. Mm-hmm.